So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Nicole Qualiteri is the hunt and fish editor for KiaJunkie.com. Back in March, she wrote a fairly controversial article titled The Hunter's Decline Myth, Habitat Not Hunting is at Risk. I'd say the article went viral. So we decided to get Nicole onto the podcast to talk about the article, and then it just went down multiple rabbit holes and multiple tangents that are certainly going to be thought-provoking for you as a hunter. Okay, so here's the dichotomy between you and me. Right now, I'm sitting in a room that I actually turned the air conditioner off in. Okay, short sleeve shirt, the whole kid and caboodle. You have a huge fleece top, and I'm seeing all over Instagram people cursing because it's not supposed to snow this early in Montana. Well, I will actually say that I would expect snow at this time of year. We had a lot of snow last year in September. Like, it kind of brutalized our elk season. And then our opener in October, when I got back to my truck from hunting on the second day after the opener, it was negative 10 degrees. Oh, <laughs> so, forget that. Yeah. This, yeah. this so, South African cannot deal right. with cold weather. Well, I mean, I've always lived with winter and I can hardly deal with that. So, yeah, it's definitely very different. Have you been chasing elk yet? Yeah, I did um, an archery hunt in, like two weeks ago with two of my friends. Um, uh, I actually hunt with one person who's non-binary and then uh, another one of my girlfriends um, came with me. And um, yeah, SJ Keller is a writer in this space as well. And she's just there. I've, no I've known them for seven years, so I like toggle back and forth between gender pronouns. But um We've hunted together a lot, and uh, it was pretty. We were in eastern Montana. It was like pretty brutal conditions, mm -hmm. like ninety degrees during the day. So the elk were pretty nocturnal. Um, we did get into bugling bulls one of the nights, but there was another hunter that had beat us there. Um, so we kind of just stepped back and listened and watched. Um, yeah, sure, sure. And yeah, gave gave him his space and. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, but it was cool to be like listening to bugling elk and like the big golden cottonwoods of the riparian area of um, eastern Montana. I mean, that's a really different experience than the for sure. you know, more timber experiences I've had before. Well, Nicole Qualiteri, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. Yeah, finally, here. I know we've gone back and forth for a long time. That's it. Uh, tell everybody a little bit about yourself if they don't know who you are. 
Yeah. Um, so I am currently the hunt and fish editor for GearJunkie.com. Um, the way that I view my job is that I talk more about hunting and fishing to the public um, than to like an expert group of hunters, like you know, say Outdoor Life or Field and Stream. Um, Gear Junkie is actually not a hunting website; it's just a gear website for really anything you could possibly imagine, right? So, like, do you like- guys have demographics in terms of have you done surveys of the people that interact with Gear Junkie? We're so SEO driven. I mean, we do more than 2 million in traffic each month. Um, and a lot of that comes through SEO. Um, so that but do you know the breakdown there in terms of like, hunt? you say it's not a hunting website, but do you know if like 80% of the people are not? No, no, no. I'm just, if the, the 2 million people that are trafficked through, are they hunters or are they not hunters? You said it's not a hunting website. So I'm curious. Yeah, well, I run, like, the hunting portion of our website. So we have, like, a hunting gear-specific um, Oh, so you page. said the $2 million is through your portion. No, that's through the whole portion. <laughs> but, like, okay, I, okay, I, okay. Substantial, I do a substantial amount of traffic per month. Um, and essentially, like, most of it comes from helping people find the right gear, right? So, like, I'm sure that almost all of your listeners have accidentally come to a gear junkie page by typing in something like best hiking shoes. And then, like... We have, you know, a best hiking shoes article that you click on and then you can scroll down. I mean, I think we've all done that in the mm-hmm. very Google-centered mm-hmm. culture that we live in. Um, and that's really Gear Junkie's bread and butter. But, like, the exciting thing about, like, what I do is that I kind of, like, live in my own domain. You know, I can write about gear. I can write about conservation. I can write about, you know, how-to stories to help more people get out hunting and fishing. And then... Um, Occasionally, I write something that ends up being <laughs> a little bit of like a controversial. <laughs> yeah, and and what I say to that is that like, um, you know, I in my time at Gear Junkie, I've written more than five hundred articles. <laughs> it's not a small, and that's like within three years, right? So the amount of articles that get that kind of attention are very very small, like less less than ten, you know. So. Um, like my bread and butter is certainly not being a controversial person and it's not really mm-hmm. as much as I love great conversation, like um, anger isn't something that I'm super into. Mm-hmm. So, so, so the, to give some, to give people context um, yeah. earlier this year, sort of wrapped up in the whole, did it come out before the whole Macronella piece yeah. or after? Oh, it was before. Yeah. So before the Matronella piece, you wrote this article, uh, March 12th, 2021 is when it was released, and it was called The Hunter Decline Myth, Habitat Not Hunting is at Risk. And sort of the Cliff Notes version here is that you said, hey, guys, I know you beat the drum about hunter numbers declining, and yes, there's truth there, but when you look at it per capita in terms of the number of people in America, so when you look at it from a statistics perspective, when you do it per capita, it's not like in 1958, we had X amount of people and there were 14 million hunters, 15 million hunters, if I remember the article correctly. And then today we have X plus a percent of people and we're still around the same number. So that's why it's gone from 9% to 4.5%. Yeah. So I think there are a lot of ways to look at those numbers. and. Um... The more I've learned about it, too, the more I've understood the data, right? And so I think that um, when I was writing it, you know, a lot of that number, that 15 million number is 
it's kind of an iffy, weird number. Like, we don't have a lot of great data around hunting licenses and the people, the amount of people who hunt in this country. Agreed. So, so with the 15 million, you know, there's also room for, like, if I buy an elk tag in Montana, but I also get an elk tag in Colorado, and I also get an elk tag in Utah, then I have, then, you know, three, I Three I licenses. Have, right. And so that doesn't even include, you know, the fact that, like, in Montana, I get like the sportsman's package every year, right? So I get like elk, deer, bear, waterfowl, <laughs> or upland. Um, I also buy my waterfowl. So like there are lots of ways that that data can be really skewed. Um, so really what I would say about that particular article is that I wanted to look at the numbers, which everyone uses to, everyone uses those numbers anyway, for regardless of the argument that they're saying, right? Like, um, and we can point out the flaws in the data. But I just wanted to give a different take on the data and mm-hmm. say, hey, like, we also have real data about habitat disappearing. We have real data about access being an issue. And we have real data that, like, really encompasses the problem of wildlife management, conservation, and where hunting all meet, right? So, like, I am less worried about hunter numbers declining because... I think that we can figure out other funding mechanisms, and I think we should figure out other funding mechanisms for hunting, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. when you have so many people using outdoor resources recreationally compared to the way it was used 30, 50, 75 years ago, um, you know, I think there should be a backpack tax similar to Pittman Robinson. I mean, I can get ahead of myself on all this stuff. No, but- no, no. You bring yeah. up a point. We had a podcast with a, a commissioner out of Arkansas, Anne-Marie Doremus. Mm-hmm. And I may put you in touch with her because she's awesome, number one. She's the first female state commissioner of the uh-huh. DNR in Arkansas. She's young, uh, hasn't got a family yet. Uh, I think she's 31 or 32. Um, and she talked about Amendment 75 in Arkansas, which is an eighth of a percent uh, general tax in the state of Arkansas goes to conservation. Yeah. So it's about 25 million, 28 million a year that goes to the DNR, similar to a, P- a PR uh, dollar amount coming in, but it's a general tax on everyone. Hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, I think people, uh, I've had a lot of conversations since March about it. Um, and, but that was the point. <laughs> so I, I, yeah, what I want people to understand is that like, I think being critical of ourselves can also like lend to better solutions, right? So if we take the time to, so I, I guess it goes back to like, like this is going to sound very rudimentary, but I took a an English class my sophomore year of high school where my teacher, um, had me debate um, the other side of um, uh, humane euthanasia for people with sickness, right? Like mm-hmm. illness. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. It was actually very palpable to me at the time because my my dad had cancer. So it was a very, it was one of these emotional lessons that stuck with me in a way that it never left like the interior of my being. Because I had to, I had to argue for it, and at that time I was against it. I was watching my mm. dad go through this thing, and as I've grown, I look back on this moment where it was so emotionally tumultuous to argue against the thing that I didn't believe in, 
but I argued it really well <laughs> and I got a great grade and it better informed me on my side of the argument, right? So I think when I think about that one lesson, you know, when I'm 15 years old, it's kind of led into this life where I can look at something and really agree with it and think hunter recruitment is great. Like, right. um, you know, for clarity, I've only been hunting for seven years. Um, sure. I didn't shoot a gun until I was 30 years old. So um, I'm all for bringing new hunters in and widening this community and making it a place where people are both welcome and have a sense of ownership, right? Like, that's a beautiful thing. But it doesn't mean that I can't learn the other sides of every argument to better understand this community as a whole. And um, I think you can do that even if you're emotionally engaged, you know? Um, and I think in a way, like, um, American discourse is missing that right now. Mm, so, absolutely. Yeah. So, like, where I want to see people, like, thriving in conversation and respectful conversation, getting into, like, I don't even want to call them arguments, but, like, educated debates. And, like, I would advise anyone who takes a strong stance on something to not just take it on faith or take it because you've listened to someone who you respect say it, like take it. I know do your own research is a little bit of a fraught term these days, but you know, um, research the other side, you know, like figure, mm -hmm. figure it out on two ends. Like, and if, if you can't argue the other side of your argument as well as yours, you really don't have any idea what you're talking about. And at the end of the day, like that's what critical thinking is. And that's like where I see a large hole, a gaping hole in this culture that I think um, is pretty easily redeemed actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's also, it, it, it talks to, and I'm a hundred percent with you, right? If you watch blood origins and you see what we do, we're constantly challenging thought. We actually, the whole point of it is we want to make you think. We want to make you plant that seed and be able to articulate this intelligent conversation or discussion point with someone who is going to counter it with X, Y, Z. And we're giving you the tools to say, this is what they're going to say. Right. And it's okay to say, yes, that's true. Or I hate trophy hunting because it's just a you know big, rich guy smiling over a dead animal and be honest and say, yes, there are rich people who go hunting for trophies. Yeah. Okay. Now that that's out the way, can I explain to you that? Let me tell you about the consequence of that individual and what it did for wildlife and habitat. What I, I want to ask specifically about the habitat part, how many people pick like really dug into the habitat part of your argument? Uh, not very many. <laughs> I think, yeah, like, um, I think that first, like, paragraph, um, you know, you have your, like, I write a lot in a classic essay structure, right? Paragraph, three quick paragraphs. People stopped reading after the first paragraph. Punchy, right? Like, yeah. I definitely punch things up. I love language. Like, I like to have fun with language, and um, I use language very colorfully. <laughs> um you know, uh, and that, I don't know, that kind of comes from a, a varied background in public speaking and doing some different things. But um, uh, that first paragraph was kind of a hit on R3, which um, for people that 
don't know what R3 is, that's kind of like the big recruitment movement. Um, like recruit, reactivate, and retain. retain right. So, um, yeah, I mean, I've seen some things within that movement that um, aren't, don't necessarily like vibe with the actual new hunters that I know. Right. So, um, yeah, that's, I guess that's an aside, but essentially like I had a small critique about R3 and then I go on to talk about, um, you know, habitat and all this other stuff. And if you really read the article in full, um, you kind of get that it's, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but it's also Mm -hmm. like more focused on, Hey, like, like what can we do for habitat? You know, like we need both of these things in order to keep hunting a part of the American tradition. And the and the American tradition of hunting culturally is really unique globally, right? Like sure, absolutely. Yeah. Um I mean, I'm sure your experience hunting in the US has been like Well, the only reason I can do it is because of the the system that's built here, right? The privilege that the system has provided someone like me, someone like you to be able to be a, a late adult onset hunter. Um, right. Yeah, the system is completely unique. So I, I don't think that people understand how much of a privilege hunting is. I think also, like, it is a privilege. <laughs> we, you know, we, we hunt at the behest of the population. So mm-hmm. the other thing I was arguing in that article that really doesn't get brought up much was I argued that we need to spend time creating hunting advocates, not necessarily new hunters. Like, the better the story we can put out about hunting, right? Like what you do. The, like, you know, I worked on Meat Eater for two and a half years from 2014 sure. to 2017. Like the work we did there. Yep. Um, the work that I'm able to do at Gear Junkie where I can directly talk with the public essentially mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. hunting in all these different ways. Like these modes of communication get out to so many more people in the world of social media, like, which to me, like really democratized the world of media in a way that had never been done before. Like we're behooved to tell good stories like oh absolutely and habitat and that's what i want to talk about habitat yeah. is that story right absolutely. habitat is is the quintessential ingredient for wildlife conservation and so when you know when we talk about habitat from a blood origins perspective i really like to plant those seeds in people's brains because you can't argue that fact like africa like the african example is a beautiful example 1.5 million square hectares, square kilometers, sorry, is protected by hunting outfits in Africa. It's not a lot. It's the size of California, Montana, and Texas combined. Okay. May not, it may seem big to America. It's a fraction of what Africa is. Okay. But a very small fraction. Yeah. It, it, it's 11%. <laughs> it's 11%. Okay. Right. Which is minuscule. But it's double the amount of national parks under conservation. Hmm. What a statistic, right? That is that is because of hunting. The habitat's puzzle piece here in America is a critical puzzle piece that I think just gets overlooked all the time when people push back against hunting, you know? Well, I don't think many people know the origin story of national forests or 
BLM land, right? Like, and and also like the story that we've been told about that is, uh, I mean, I feel like I'd be remiss not to remind people that I mean we're recording this on National Indigenous Peoples Day in the U.S. Right, which just recently replaced Columbus Day, and mm-hmm. so the story that we've also been told about conservation also has other layers, right? Like 100%. the indigenous people here suffered greatly, you know, because of war, because of, uh, you know, smallpox diseases. I mean, like we are here um, in many ways as like a conquering people. Mm-hmm. But then you have a conservation story that, managed to save some of this place right like from people that were very kind of unlikely to save it like a lot of it was kind of an accident you know like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the roosevelt story like you have people like aldo leopold like all of these people that you know i've learned to look up to as a hunter and a conservationist like i i didn't know that story until i started hunting you know like, I didn't know that story when I was backpacking on public lands, when I was skiing, right. riding horses, when I, whatever I was doing out there. It's just sort of, you took it for granted. Like, like I grew up in Colorado. I was surrounded by public land. I had no idea what the history of that land was. And, like, maybe they gave it to me in, like, a college history class that I slept through, you know? But, like, <laughs> it, like it, it wasn't, like, um, top of mind, and it wasn't something like I loved wildlife. I loved being outside, but like those stories hadn't been told to me in a tangible way that like made me care, you know? Um, Do you think that that's tied to, again, I come from it from a very unique perspective because to me, I can, I feel the privilege. I understand the privilege. I understand it because of where I came from. Right. Do you think that there's a lack of grasping the idea of what is put in, what has been put in place. I think that the majority of people don't have the type of connection to landscape that like the hunting community does. Um, But I would say that public lands have become like a much hotter issue I would say even just within the last like decade, right? Like we see things like bears ears and Mm -hmm. the national monuments make headline news. Um, And the amount of people that stood up for public lands, you know, um, in 2016, 2017, like when I was working at meat eater, we had like our biggest viral post was about, um, a congressman in Utah who had um, basically put 7.2 million acres. Wasn't that this? Was that the Chavez guy? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. I mean, Jason. I, Jason Chavez. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Chavez. I never know how to say his last name. So, like, he eventually. Oh, you can just blame me. I'm a South African. I, yeah. I cool. butcher the names. There. Just say, yeah, I just we'll followed Maurice's lead. <laughs> That's great. Um. So. Yeah, so, you know, we kind of started this, like, social media movement. It was actually sort of crazy. Like, I um, saw on social media that, like, it was super hot button and, like, called Steve. And I was like, hey, we need to, like, write Steve and Ronella, meat eater. And I'm like, hey, we need to, like, write, like, just a paragraph and get it out there. Like, this is a hot button issue. 
And I like bugged him for a couple of days. I'm like, okay, we just got to do it. And so like he sends me the paragraph, like put it out there and like immediately it just goes viral. And, um, you know, we had over a million impressions just on that post in like less than a day and a half. And so you see something like that go viral, right? Like, and it, like, it wasn't just hunters, <laughs> you know, it was mm-hmm. people that had like come to this understanding of public lands as something that could be taken away. Yeah, yeah. I think once something is under duress, people will pay attention to it, right? Like, until you see something, like, in trouble, generally, I think as humans, we're hardwired to not, like, there are so many other stressors in our lives. And something about hunting and hunters, it's, like, even worse. Like, (laughs) we're in the closet. Like, even if you open the closet, you couldn't find us. Until it like, then we all boil out. Like the bear incident, right? The bear hunting ban that was coming down the pipeline in California. It took someone like that senator out of San Francisco, Wiener, to say, I'm about to put something on the plate for everyone to boil out of the closet. And yes, we got it knocked down, but it's like, well, why don't we just be a little, can we just please be a little proactive here? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's hard to be proactive when you have an idea of what your normal is. You don't know like what your normal can't be until like your normal is challenged, right? Like, and I, I. What do you think it would take to change the normal of hunters to being more, dare I say, offensive and offensive in the football scheme of things, not in the in the in the way that we are typically right now? Yeah. Um. Well, I think hunters are plenty of us. No, I'm just kidding. Um. No, I, I, I understand what you're saying, to be more proactive than reactive. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, what would it take? I don't know. I just, I I really don't think that until something comes under, like, under fire, that, like, people fire back. You know, and I think the issue, so I think <laughs> there's two sides, right? So, like, when you look at the other side of the people that see bears getting hunted and they don't want it to happen they see something under duress, right? So they take action. So they're actually really being reactive to something that's been there for a long time, right? Like, I mean, we saw in BC, um, you can't hunt grizzly bears there anymore. And a very minuscule amount of grizzly bears were actually taken in BC. I think it was about 250 bears a year. Um, But, you know, we lost that privilege because other people saw bears under duress, which I'm putting in quotation marks because... I'm for the I'm for wildlife management. Oh, sure. Um so yeah, it it becomes a really interesting issue because I do think that, you know, I've often been frustrated. Really like the first article that I wrote back when I worked at Meat Eater that did really well was one about um social media and the persecution complex that I was seeing with hunters where they felt like they were being persecuted all the time and where they would take action was on social media against anti-hunters, right? Or saying like, haters gonna hate or like all of that kind of stuff where it's like just this really kind of like puffed out chest, like come at me, bro kind of situation. When like really like that action should be more political. <laughs> like that action should be the type of actions that we took in that bear hunting situation in California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the perceived threats are not actually the real threats. You know, like 
um, I mean, anyone who hunts, I think it's going to have like a V, like, I don't even want to say a vegan because I have a lot of friends that are vegan that like we talk about our similarities more than our differences. Of course. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, and like, um, I, but you know, you also have like kind of the, you always have people on the extremes and unfortunately they tend to be the loudest, craziest people tend to get the most attention. And so like, yeah, I, if I had any advice to anyone who feels like they're in that persecution complex of like wanting to consistently, like, you know, make statements against anti hunters, like maybe pay more attention to what's going on in your legislation. Like, you know, um, I mean, Montana has been under an onslaught, not from people that are anti hunting, but from people that want to privatize hunting, you know, and we're seeing a lot of issues with, um, people trying to pr- privatize elk hunting and um, it make those tags more available to non-residents who can pay 10 or $20,000 to hunt them. So like there are onslaughts from the inside as well. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And I, I do think like, I know I'm throwing so much out there, right? Like we could have hour long conversations on a lot of these things, but yeah, I think the perceived threat is more legislative than it is person to person. You know, like not many hunters are killed each year by vegans. <laughs> like it's not a real thing. <laughs> like if somebody like says something crappy on social media to you, I get it all the time. I get I get trolled um, and I I block those people and I put their usernames up on my story. Like, fine, come for me. But like you're going to hear from people mm-hmm. about it. Um, mm-hmm. So like, so yeah, I mean, I there has to be a little bit of a thicker skin and um, an understanding of what's at risk. The habit and the habitat thing, the habit, habitat thing is incremental, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's one piece here. It's one piece there. It's access being taken away in one place. It's a conservation easement that doesn't allow for hunting. You know, there are all these different ways that like incremental portions of habitat are being taken from the landscape. And that, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with anyone's feelings about hunting. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, you talked about advice and you just mentioned feelings about hunting, people's feelings about hunting. In that article, you, you at the right at the end of the article, one of the final paragraphs, you said, if any hunter wants to do all hunters a favor, we need to be great ambassadors for hunting culture, not to bring people in, but to better their assumptions about who we are. Uh, Nicole, what are the what are what what assumptions do people have about hunters? I think that you know, uh, <laughs> I think it's I think it's easy to understand what assumptions most people have. Like whether it was what you said earlier about like people shooting trophy animals. Like one thing that I talk about a lot with people who don't know anything about hunting is wanton waste loss. Um, like, people assume that I can just go out, kill an elk, take its head, and leave the meat in the field. Well, no, I can't oh, do that. True. That would be poaching. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't do that. Like, that's a lot of really great meat to leave in the fields. Like, I'd rather leave the head in the field than the meat in the field any day, right? Like, and I would say that most of the hunters, most hunters are the same way. Of course I take the head out. And of course, like, like I'm proud of the bucks that I've killed and mm-hmm. the pronghorn, you know? And, like, mm-hmm. this year I'm really hoping to kill my first elk. So, like... There, there are all these different things that play into it, right? But, like, the assumptions range from the trophy hunting assumption to, like, the Bubba, you know, hunter 
assumption where like people are just sort of killing animals for sport and fun and drinking beer and whatever it is. And then there, you know, I would say that like the other side of it is that I don't know that people really know the difference between hunting and poaching. <laughs> like even 100%. when you think about hunting and poaching in the media, constantly confused. People are constantly confused and you'll read a journalist that is like two hunters were charged with poaching. Like no, like two poachers were charged with poaching. Like I'm a hunter. I go hunting. Poachers go poaching. There's like mm -hmm. a very, very clean line there mm -hmm. to us, right? Like mm -hmm. it's especially to you, right? Like as a South African, I'm sure that like right, of course, a different yeah. conversation. Yep. yep. And so yeah, and it gets gray, you know, when you start bringing in the fact, and that it doesn't really happen here in the U.S. Um, and if it did, I think people would understand a little bit. But it gets gray when someone's doing it to feed their family. Right, that that is just like necessity, and so it's almost like. But then when it's, I just saw a little clip out of Cameroon where the guy was like, "Hey, back in the day, that's we we hunted for the family for meat, but now people hunt for money, and they sell the meat for money, and that's where you the line slides from sustenance to poaching. So, you know, from being even though it's illegal, it's probably morally okay." to illegal and unethical kind of deal you know yeah absolutely and i i mean those gray lines are everywhere in hunting that's why it's such a fascinating like media structure to be a part of like like i'm never not curious in my work mm -hmm. like i don't ever get bored like there might be days when i don't want to write about a pair of gloves anymore but like that's the you know that's the drudgery of what i do in my job so like i you know i think that like that's you're right there's definitely a difference between hunting for hunting for sustenance poaching for sustenance right if people are going to live because they're killing something if they're if they're going to kill the white-tailed deer that live around my house because they can't afford to feed their family like i'm probably not going to report them right like 100 percent. Right. There's, there's a big difference there big difference which might be a terrible thing to say, or maybe it's the right thing to say. No, it's, it's the absolute player, right thing to right? say. No, it is the absolute right thing to so say. Like, yeah, I I mean, I, I understand that the rules exist for a reason, right? And when you look at wildlife conservation in the U.S., I think it kind of goes back to what we're talking about with, you know, selling meat, <laughs> uh, selling wild Ooh. meat. Right? Dude, you, like, you are like on the same wavelength as me because I was about to just say, what do you think about the idea of let's changing in America today, going back to the idea of selling venison, like a UK, European model? Yeah. So I am a big proponent for the Lacey Act. And so I might be on the other side of you than that, depending. But the reason that I'm for the Lacey Act is because I think if we commercialized meat, I think that a lot more illegal meat would probably get back into that structure. I, I can I can agree with that statement. I will yeah. say, though, the reason I would be for it is that I believe today we have the protocols, the enforcement, the regulations that are more robust than they were, say, in the 20s and, and 10s and 30s. So to me... I think we've got, like, if you just look at alligators, right? You look at any resource that is traded, like alligators. Alligators was on the brink of extinction. They came back. Now it's a, it's a commodity that is utilized. The meat is utilized and the leather is utilized. It is the most regulated 
piece of resource in the world. That thing is barcoded from the time it's killed to the time it hits Louis Vuitton's shelves. Mm-hmm. Yet it's the probably the biggest conservation story on this planet. It's interesting, right? I mean, we actually do allow the sale of wild meat in the U.S., but it's through wild boars that are invasive. And mm-hmm. so, like, I would say that if we're looking to maintain maintain no but you can't sell that commercially yeah you can you can in a restaurant and it goes through on, a u.s it goes through a u.s oh yes 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 yeah. and this and uh oh you're, you're right boars and the guys at maui nui venison have done it in hawaii with access access deer. deer yeah so mm-hmm. um i am all for figuring out how to monetize invasive species like we're really good at getting rid of of a lot of species if we can monetize something like carp or something like wild boars or you know things that like really need to come off the landscape um i'm for that i think that if we move to a commercial model for hunting where people become you know um the similar to um, you know, the hunters of the early 19th century that like the reason we call it a buck is because like a dollar, the reason we call a dollar a buck is because that's what a buckskin went for, you okay. know, in the days of commercial trading. So commercial wildlife trading. So like there, are, we still have these longstanding remnants of things prior to the Lacey Act. But when you add something commercial and capitalist to something that hasn't been that way, I would expect we'd lose a lot more hunting access for the public hunter and Possibly. that it would really change to a more farmed model, which yeah, I agree. Which, which exists in a lot of I can see that. the country now. Yeah, so, and the European model does not have the public land component to it, well, which makes complete sense. The other issue with the European model is that wildlife aren't held in the public trust. So in the US, wildlife right. are held in the public trust, right? So like if an elk walks through the yard of my cabin, like when it's in my yard, it still belongs to the public. It doesn't belong to me. Like, mm. and that's very different from the way they do it in Europe. And maybe there are places in Europe that I don't know about that do it differently. But I know that like within like hunting in England, like if a stag crosses from the Queen's yeah. right. Right, hunting grounds to someone else's hunting grounds, then the the sense of ownership changes. So um, that doesn't happen here. All wildlife belong in the public trust. They're held in the public trust. So any beneficiary of that wildlife, so like let's say you sold that wildlife, that meat, it would have to somehow come back to the public trust because mm-hmm. that's really the way mm-hmm. that it's set up. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm making a little bit of an assumption there, but like I would venture to guess that that would be the case with the way that we've set up public lands and wildlife. Yeah, right? no, it's, it's a good argument. It's one that some elements that I have not th- thought about. So thank you. No, it's fun. No, I love it. Well, you know, I love the idea of like having these conversations. Like it's fun, right? Like, I mean, the access deer are a serious problem in Hawaii. You have 30,000 on a single island. You can hunt. Right, right. Right? It's a, it's a hunter's, you know, um, paradise. You can hunt 365 days a year in paradise. So like, uh, but you know, you have 30,000 animals on a single island. Like that's a serious issue. So mm-hmm. um, invasives, to me, are another big threat facing access, you know, whether it's teat grass pushing out our sagebrush communities, that's hard to say, Um, 
you know, or even pinion juniper, like really taking up the wrong spaces in the land and sucking up that water from the aquifer. Once you get those pinion junipers off the landscape, the water levels actually change. So when we think about all these different aspects of what goes into access or public land or public wildlife, I mean, there's so many stories to tell. It's unbelievable, even within ourselves. Like, yeah. sometimes I just feel overwhelmed because I want to, you know, I like, there. there's just so much to talk about. Like, yeah, us too, right? There's so many stories to tell. So many, we, we talk about proofs with Blood Origins and that, you know, everyone talks about hunting as conservation. We internally message it by saying, well, prove it. Uh, so who's, my who's, answer... My answer to you on that, um, I don't think that hunting is conservation. Oh, it's no, it's not. It's well, it's on. There's links between it, right? Well, I except think in the invasive species, in an invasive yeah. species context. So I say hunting regulations are conservation, and so like that's where I differ. Yeah, 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 yeah. But 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 <laughs> everyone brings that to the table. No, it's not hunting. It's the actual laws on hunting. You have to have an activity to have regulations on it. So regardless of whatever you want to call it, it's it's still tied to the activity. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a regulation. I see what you're saying. I um I would say that like like a soccer game doesn't exist without rules, right? It doesn't exist without a referee. Same <laughs> like, thing. So yeah, you can't totally. say that soccer is soccer because of regulation. Soccer is soccer. There are rules that go with the game, but the game is soccer. Soccer right. does X or soccer does Y. Same thing as hunting. I guess if you look at the long form of hunting, right? Like hunting throughout human history, like hunting certainly hasn't been conservation. Like there have been many instances of humans hunting something to 100%. its extinction. And, yep. and, and I don't fault those societies, right? Like when you think about, like no one really knows what happened at the end of the Pleistocene with mammoths and short-faced bears and all of these different charismatic megafauna that existed that I would die to see. I mean, that would be like, like if I could have, you know, a, a time traveling machine, I would want to go back to like the American Serengeti of the Pleistocene. Mm -hmm. Like what an incredible place that must have been. What a terrifying mm -hmm. place that must have been. What an incredible place. And so, like, like uh, hunting itself just doesn't have a great record <laughs> over the eons of being a measure of conservation. It's definitely That's kept true. humans alive. And it's definitely kept humans in a place where, like, we have thrived, right? But, like... Yeah, but, but human history has never been in a place where it needed to value conservation. It needed to value wildlife. Until it, now. Until now. Correct. Until a burgeoning human population resulted in the idea that, hey, we have these things that we need to value. Right. We're in we're now in the Anthropocene, right? So like like we've moved into a place where like humans have affected the landscape so deeply, but we're also tasked with caring for it. And keeping Correct. it intact and keeping wildlife, whether they're a hunted species or non-hunted species or a songbird on the landscape. Like, 
we we are like the uh, i guess arbiters of our future you know like we are mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah i don't know it's such a big problem mm-hmm. well um I, I i don't think i've ever had a podcast that has been so tangential uh at multiple turns, I think we've done probably a couple of 90 degrees all the way through the podcast. So thank you, Nicole. I much appreciate you for that. We'll yeah. have to have you on again to do it again. In which, uh, So this is what I would say. Next time you write a – next time you think that you're going to write a controversial article, give me a heads up. <laughs> and uh, we'll have you back on the podcast and we'll talk about it because I actually think – it's 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 a good segue because we did it with Matt Ronella. Matt Ronella's piece went out. Literally three days later, we had him on the podcast. And it was a fantastic podcast because he was just like, I had no idea. <laughs> I'm a scientist. I needed 5,000 words. I was given 1,500 words. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, Matt and I know each other really well. So, like, that was all pretty interesting. Um and we'd actually like talked about this subject. So yeah, so it's a, uh, it was funny. I certainly wasn't expecting him to write an article, but I'm glad he did. It's always fun yeah. to see what happens in our space. And, you know, there, there are always moments of um, interesting <laughs> cultural discussions that like, just seem to like, you know, bring a hive mind to the world. And uh you know, from a lot of different perspectives and, and I'm, I'm here for it. Like I, I love hearing the different perspectives and yeah, it's exciting that people care, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate you. I appreciate what you do. Uh, thank you for, um, your perspectives and and what you put out in the writing. So thank you. Yeah. I'm humbled to be here. So it's, it's been a lot of fun and, um, yeah, I clearly, I love the tangents. It's, I love the rabbit holes. So we'll do it um, again. We'll do it again. We'll do it again. Sounds good. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.